1: One of the more perplexing mysteries of contemporary politics is why self-identified Christian values voters have so strongly supported Donald Trump. Why would people who have historically placed great importance on the personal morality and character of political candidates give their vote to someone whose entire life has flaunted Christian values? John Hagee, the pastor of the Cornerstone megachurch in San Antonio, Texas, and the founder of Christians United for Israel, gave one possible answer. Here he is at his pulpit in late November 2016, just a few weeks after Trump's surprise victory.
2: I have been asked 101 times plus, why do you think Donald Trump won? And I have an immediate answer, because he was the only one that was blessing Israel. There were 3.3 million Christians United for Israel in our organization waiting for one candidate to stand up and speak up. The evangelicals flooded the voting booths this time like at no time in our history.
1: Hagee wasn't wrong. According to exit polls from the 2016 election, 81% of white evangelicals supported Donald Trump. One quarter of all Americans identify as evangelical Christian. The support of this base helped put Trump into the White House. During his November sermon, Hagee showed his congregation clips from Donald Trump's May 2016 speech to the annual American-Israel Public Affairs Committee Policy Conference.
2: We have three minutes of snippets from Mr. Trump's one speech. You certainly didn't get to see it on main TV because this is offensive to them, but it's pleasing to the Lord. Roll the tape.
3: I speak to you today as a lifelong supporter and true friend of Israel. But I didn't come here tonight to pander to you about Israel. That's what politicians do, all talk, no action, believe me. When I'm president, we will move the American embassy to the eternal capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem. And we will send a clear signal that there is no daylight between America and our most reliable ally, the state of Israel.
1: For Hagee and many evangelical Christians, this was the most important speech of Trump's campaign. Trump may have been a scoundrel in his personal life, but if he was willing to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, then he was going to get their vote. For millions of Christian voters, this was the political issue that mattered most. Why? They believed it would help bring about the end of the world. I'm Zachary Davis, and this is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. In this episode, we'll examine the influence of evangelical Christian apocalypticism on American politics and culture. Nearly every ancient religion had some vision of the end of the world. The African Yoruba, Native American Hopi, and Mesopotamian civilizations told flood myths that symbolized an ending and renewal of world order. Zoroastrians believed that one day the wise Lord would come to separate the good and evil with purifying fire. Islamic apocalypticism includes a, quote, day of resurrection, and Jainism predicts a disruption of the wheel of time. Jewish apocalyptic theology was especially robust. The books of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel described in great detail the events leading up to the end of the world. These beliefs included the return of exiled Jews to their homeland and the appearance of a Messiah who would bring about a new era and resurrect the righteous dead. Early Jewish followers of Christ brought their beliefs about the end of the world into what later became Christian teaching. The original followers of Jesus thought he would be returning very soon after his death to establish his rule on earth. Ever since, Christians have waited expectantly for Christ's return, looking for signs that the end is near. The Nicene Creed, a profession of faith originally adopted in 235 CE and recited in many churches each Sunday, includes a reference to Christ's return.
3: He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end.
1: Christians glean their apocalyptic prophecy from many passages throughout the Bible. But the beliefs were primarily based on the book of Revelations, which is also known as the Apocalypse of St. John. The book of Revelations helped establish two highly influential apocalyptic tenets. First, that Christ's reign would last for a thousand years during a period called the millennium. And second, that before the return of Christ, there would be immense turmoil and tribulation. As a result of this second belief, Christians were on the lookout for signs of catastrophic suffering. And over the years, They had plenty to choose from. Roman persecution and its eventual collapse, the expansion of Islam, the Crusades, the Black Plague, religious conflicts, the world wars—all of these were seen as evidence that the world was ending and Christ would soon return. Jerusalem and Israel have always been important to Christian apocalyptic speculation, but they gained new potency during the Protestant Reformation the Protestant Reformation called into question many components of Catholic theology. Catholics believed that the church had replaced the Jewish people in apocalyptic prophecy. But according to Protestants, the Jews did have a role to play in bringing about Christ's second coming and the end of time. Influential reformers like John Calvin began preaching about the special part Jews would play in the events leading up to Christ's second coming, especially their eventual return to their homeland after centuries of exile. These beliefs eventually made their way to American pulpits. Puritan preachers like Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather emphasized the doctrine. And in an 1836 biblical commentary, the prominent theologian Charles Hodge wrote The restoration of the Jews is not only a most desirable event, but one which God has determined to accomplish. In the 19th century, a more historical and critical analysis of the Bible emerged, and with it came a renewed emphasis on the literal gathering to Israel. This analysis was a largely German effort to treat the Bible as a historical document, evaluating its evidence according to the latest scientific techniques. Although more conservative Christian theologians were threatened by these developments, they were also wrapped up in the scientific zeitgeist, so they doubled down in their commitment to traditional theology using the methods of scientific reason. The result was a new form of biblical reading called biblical literalism. Matt Sutton a professor of history at Washington State University and the author of the book American Apocalypse, explains how biblical literalists read the Bible and what the effect was.
0: Yeah, well, they would say that they read the scriptures literally, but in fact, it's a pretty complicated system in which they take various verses from throughout the Bible and they kind of lay them on top of one another. And so instead of reading the Bible as a narrative that tells different stories across time, they in fact believe that hidden within this narrative are these particular ideas that you can kind of pick out, put together. And so essentially it's a a code book. The Bible has this kind of secret story woven into it. And so they're trying to identify that story and put together the pieces to make it make the most sense for them.
1: One proponent of biblical literalism was the American theologian and politician Cyrus I. Schofield. Schofield was a member of the Kansas House of Representatives. However, he was forced to resign after he was discovered accepting bribes for railroad construction contracts. He moved to Missouri— where he began attending theology conferences and soon after became a minister. He was so taken with the idea of using biblical literalism to unlock the secrets of the apocalypse that he wrote the first ever general audience reference Bible in 1909. He humbly titled it, The Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield was an innovator in biblical interpretation. Instead of cross-referencing biblical passages in his book, he inserted his interpretations side by side with the scripture. This meant that instead of having to parse through the Bible, plus several additional reference books, any believing Christian could simply read the Bible along with Schofield. His annotations were full of the biblical literalism and apocalypticism that Schofield himself was so fascinated with. They offered readers a precise understanding of when the world would end and what would happen beforehand. And they were presented in a form that made them appear to be not just one person's interpretation, but the authoritative truth. The Schofield Reference Bible was an immediate bestseller. His knack for clearly mapping apocalyptic prophecy onto Bible passages helped inform and shape a group of Christians who were the precursors to today's evangelicals. The rise of biblical literalism was not the only reason that apocalyptic theology became more widespread. One important aspect of Schofield's interpretation was that an evil antichrist would emerge out of organized government. This led many of Schofield's readers to harbor intense distrust of Washington. Evangelical suspicion of government also appealed to some powerful financial interests, especially the oil industry. For businessmen interested in limiting government regulations, this end-times theology offered an attractive promise.
0: Yeah, so J. Howard Pugh was was an oil man, a businessman, one of the wealthier people in the United States. And in the 1930s and 40s, he decided that churches were helping to shape the way people were thinking. They were helping shape the trajectory of the nation. He would not have described himself as born again or having a personal relationship with Jesus. He was a more liberal Presbyterian, but he recognized that evangelicals were growing in power and growing in influence, and he realized that their theology really paralleled or worked with his libertarian theology, his anti-statism. He didn't want the government regulating his oil business or taxing
1: him. Using his sizable fortune, Pugh helped to fund evangelical efforts. He supported the founding of the evangelical magazine Christianity Today in 1956. And he worked closely with the preacher Billy Graham to revitalize the seminary in 1969.
0: Even you know, He could have cared less about salvation, about the growth of evangelicalism. He just cared about creating and finding religious leaders who supported his anti-statist politics.
1: The popularity of this apocalyptic theology continued to spread in America, thanks in part to popular media.
3: For 2,000 years we have waited, for 2,000 years we have known, for 2,000 years the world has feared that one day would be the last day. Now, in 2001, that day may be
1: tomorrow. This is from the 2001 action film, The Battle of Armageddon, Megiddo, The Omega Code, which depicts the end of the world in line with Christian prophecy. The most popular example of this genre was the action-packed, left-behind novel series. In the late 1990s, theologian Tim LaHaye paired up with sports writer Jerry B. Jenkins to write the 16 books which depicted what the apocalypse might look like if it began in present day. Total sales for the series have surpassed 80 million copies. Seven titles in the series have reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. According to Pastor Jerry Falwell, the series' impact on Christianity is, quote, probably greater than that of any other book in modern times outside the Bible. Through popular books, movies, and even video games— Evangelical apocalypticism became embedded in the American psyche. And just like Howard Pugh hoped, these apocalyptic views came to exert a powerful political influence.
2: What political philosopher or thinker do you most identify with and why?
3: Governor Bush. Uh, Christ. Because he changed my heart. I think that the viewer would like to know more on how he has changed your heart. When you turn your heart and your life over to Christ, when you accept Christ as a savior, it changes your heart, it changes your life.
1: Evangelicals have been a pivotal voting block in American politics since at least Jimmy Carter's election. Presidents know this and often promise to push forward evangelical policy priorities in exchange for their vote. Ronald Reagan instituted a ban on providing abortions as part of international humanitarian aid in 1984 to mollify evangelical Christians were opposed to abortion access. In 1998, Bill Clinton passed the International Religious Freedom Act, which allowed Americans to participate in missionary and conversion activities globally as part of an international human rights framework. And for decades, evangelical Christians have consistently prioritized American support for Israel, which they see as a necessary component of fulfilling apocalyptic prophecy. In fact, Evangelical support for the Jewish return to the biblical Holy Land stretches back even longer, since the decline of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. But shortly after World War II, the apocalyptic prophecy many Christians were working for seemed to suddenly come true. In May of 1948, a new
2: Jewish state, Israel, was born in a bath of blood. Jewish troops routed Arab forces
1: from the city of Haifa in the first of a series of battles that were to reverberate through the years. The Arab Israeli War, also known as the Israeli Independence Day War, or the Palestinian Day of Disaster, ended with Israel pushing beyond the state boundaries that the British colonial forces had allotted to the Jewish community. The U.S. government and the rest of the international community recognized the sovereignty of the state of Israel almost immediately and accepted the 1948 armistice lines as Israel's borders. Six months later, the new state of Israel declared that the Israeli parliament would move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Because both Israel and Jordan claimed Jerusalem, the U.S. maintained its embassy in Tel Aviv, with an additional consulate office in Jerusalem. Since then, evangelical Christians have been advocating to move the embassy and recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. On December 6, 2017, They finally got their wish. Donald Trump announced that he would move the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv, where it had sat since the founding of the state, to Jerusalem.
3: I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. While previous presidents have made this a major campaign promise, they failed to deliver. Today, I am delivering.
1: For evangelicals like Pastor John Hagee, the announcement was cause for jubilation. Today,
2: President Donald Trump has recognized the city of Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. This has never been done before by a U.S. president. President Trump told me when last we spoke regarding the embassy that he would not disappoint us, speaking of the evangelical community. And today, he has kept that promise. President Trump has stepped into political immortality. What he has done today
1: will be eternally celebrated. The embassy move took place on May 13, 2018. This was also the 51st annual Israeli Jerusalem Day, which celebrates the forcible military annexation of Palestinian East Jerusalem by the Israeli army. This day is known to Palestinians as a day of despair for their nationalist aspirations. The embassy now sits directly on the Green Line, the border between Jewish and Palestinian annexed Jerusalem. Trump's embassy decision demonstrates the fact that for evangelical Christians who believe in an imminent apocalypse, peace in the Holy Land is not their objective. Diplomacy is not just seen as useless— counter to God's plan. Leah Rechtman, a student at Harvard Divinity School who studies Christian Zionism and who is the producer of this episode, explains. Christian Zionists have really tempered the capacity for peace work from the U.S. because when the reason that you're interested in Israel is to fulfill an apocalyptic schema that specifically has to do with the world getting worse and Israel ending in war and a lot of Jews dying— You're not super engaged in trying to bring about a peace process between Jews and Muslims who are a group of people who you fundamentally think are heathen. When American presidents have chosen not to listen to their evangelical base on Israel, they have experienced the well-funded, highly public wrath of top evangelical leaders. Take President Jimmy Carter. Carter ran on a platform of evangelical Christian values, including support for Israel. For him, That included engaging in peace talks and establishing the first Camp David Accords between Egyptian President Anwar el-Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. This peace agreement was in opposition to biblical prophecy, and Carter's fellow evangelicals were infuriated. They ran major hit pieces on Carter in the evangelical press and organized massive support and turnout for his opponent, then-Governor Ronald Reagan, in the 1980 election. Carter lost his re-election bid. Evangelical Christians have exercised their Zionist political might by swaying elections, pushing policy, and moving embassies. But Christian Zionism is only one aspect of the apocalyptic evangelical agenda.
3: When voters elected Republicans to a majority of both chambers of Congress, they effectively put Oklahoma senator and longtime climate change denier James Inhofe in charge of the Senate's climate policy. So when they say that 97, 98% of the scientists agree, that just isn't true. So what I said on the Senate floor today, I said, how arrogant is it for people to say that man can do something about changing climate? Climate has always changed. The hoax is that there are people who are so arrogant that they think they have the power to change climate. Now that's the hoax.
1: Evangelicals are notorious for their skepticism of climate change and resistance to international efforts to combat it. An anti-science mentality is often blamed for these attitudes, but a closer look reveals that narratives about the end times may be more of a factor. Many evangelicals believe that even if climate change is real, God won't let it get in the way of the unfolding of his ultimate plans for humanity. Republican Representative Tim Wahlberg articulated this idea at a town hall in Coldwater, Michigan last year. Do I
3: think that man has some impact? Yeah, of course. Can man change the entire universe? No. No.
0: Why do I believe that? Well, as a Christian, I believe that there is a creator of God who is much bigger
1: than us. Amen. Other evangelical Christians accept that climate change does represent a serious threat, but they don't see it as something to collectively combat, but rather as a sign of the coming apocalypse. Rising sea levels are reminiscent of the biblical flood. Increased wildfires echo their fire and brimstone prophecies. Mass migration, weakened ecosystems, and rising global temperatures all indicate that the end is upon us. Their response isn't to compost and drive a Prius, but to work to save more souls before the rapture. For a similar reason, many evangelicals oppose efforts to counter climate change through international cooperation. This is in part because their eschatology implies that the Antichrist will arise out of a global governing body. Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series deals with this particular apocalyptic fear head-on. In the series the Antichrist rises to power by gaining control of the United Nations. From there, he's able to set up a global world government and plot to destroy Christianity. Here's LaHaye reflecting on this part of the series in an interview with Dateline Australia.
3: So he's going to establish a one-world government. That's one reason Christians are suspicious of globalism. They see it as maybe a precursor of
1: Antichrist. This may help to unravel many Republican politicians' sometimes inexplicable hatred for the U.N., or other forms of international cooperation.
3: Which brings me to my next point, the utter weakness and incompetence of the United Nations. The United Nations is not a friend of democracy. It's not a friend to freedom. It's not a friend even to the United States of America, where, as you know, It has its home, and it surely is not a friend to Israel.
1: Evangelical apocalypticism rose to prominence largely due to financial backers who sought to make anti-state ideologies more popular. Powerful supporters have rallied against climate science in much the same way. The Cornwall Alliance is one of the oldest organizations to oppose climate science on the basis of Christian values. The alliance is funded by Freedom Partners, an organization that is controlled directly by the Koch brothers, Charles G. and David H. Koch, who, like Howard Pugh, made their money refining crude heavy oil. In 2010, the Cornwall Alliance ran a campaign called Resisting the Green Dragon. The image of the Green Dragon of environmentalism was intended to help evangelical Christians connect care for the environment with pagan, unchristian values. Here's a clip from the Cornwall Alliance's Green Dragon campaign promotional material.
0: In what has become one of the greatest deceptions of our day, radical environmentalism is striving to put America and the world under its destructive control.
1: This so-called green dragon is seducing your children in our classrooms and popular culture. Its lust for political power now extends to the highest global levels. These approaches to climate change have significant policy implications. President Bush chose not to join an international climate agreement called the Kyoto Protocol because it stood for international collaboration. Last year, President Trump mirrored Bush when he decided to leave the Paris Climate Agreement. Faith is a powerful motivator, both personally and politically. And finding shared values across religious lines can be difficult. But if we are going to peacefully co-create a nation, we have to find ways to cross the divide. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a Nobel Prize-winning climate scientist and an evangelical herself, suggests a way to talk to those who deny climate change on the basis of apocalyptic theology.
2: The fascinating thing is, is that the answer to that doesn't come from science. The answer comes from the Bible because, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. People have been feeling the same way and thinking the same things for centuries and millennia. So in the Bible, there was a group of people already at that time in the city of Thessalonica who were saying, oh, the world's going to end. Christ is going to return tomorrow, so let's just quit our jobs and lay around. And the Apostle Paul actually wrote to them and, you know, in, in true Apostle Paul form, basically told them to get off their rears and, you know, get a job and care for their families and, you know, take care of the widows and the poor because you don't know when is the day or the hour. And in the meantime, you're not called to sit in your lazy boy with your hands folded You're called to actually get out there and express the love of God to the world.
1: Hayhoe points out that in order to build bridges with those who believe differently, it is more effective to engage with them using their own moral and narrative discourse, rather than try to bludgeon them into submission with data. There are some signs that these bridges may be working. Numerous studies have found that young evangelicals are tilting away from their parents' indifference to the environment, and beginning to articulate a new theology of environmental stewardship. Here is Samuel Rodriguez, a millennial evangelical and the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2017.
3: I believe Christians should be the number one advocates in taking care of the environment. We have a a biblical responsibility to speak prophetically to making sure that Christians rise up as the primary voice to be viable stewards of God's creation indeed. And we need to make that a priority. Every single Bible-believing Christians should stand up and say, we have a moral, God-given responsibility to take care of this creation, without exception.
1: Evangelical apocalyptic theology has had a powerful influence on American politics and culture. It helps explain why some American Christians support Israel so strongly and oppose international efforts to reduce climate change. It also shows how sincerely held beliefs can be manipulated by selfish business ends. Huge amounts of corporate money made Christian Zionism and climate change denial politically influential. In modern America, even faith can become an exploitable resource. Despite its more evocative images of death, destruction, and condemnation, the narrative of the Christian apocalypse can also inspire hope. After all, the apocalypse is not just about the end of the world, it's also about the beginning of a new one. A new world free of injustice, poverty and strife. A world governed by love and peace. Perhaps we can all learn a lesson from the evangelical Christians who have so passionately worked to fulfill these hopes. In their engaging media and fervent political activism, they model how to articulate and struggle for the end of one world and the ushering in of another, better one. Whatever new world you're longing for, go forth and fight for it. This episode was produced by Leah Rechtman. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to tell you about a great episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast soonish, Origin Story, from host Wade Rausch, is a beautiful exploration of audio, science, and personal narrative from the founding father of our podcast collective. And it's also a delightful listening. Take a minute and tune in at soonishpodcast.org. Audio Collective.